Higher Voltage is brought to you by Salesforce. Today's higher ed marketers face new challenges and must expand beyond traditional tactics to engage their many audiences. Learn how Salesforce empowers institutions of all sizes to unify first-party data, build and measure targeted campaigns, and deliver personalized messaging across channels. Visit salesforce.org to learn about how Salesforce can help your college or university achieve its goals. Hello, and welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast about higher education that explores what's working, what's not, and what needs to change in higher ed marketing and administration. I'm your host, Kevin Tyler. Welcome back to Higher Voltage with my friends, TVP, Teresa Valerio Parrott and Aaron Hennessy with TVP Communications. This time we're talking about basically like a hot topics episode where we have found some items in the news that we found to be kind of interesting and wanted to have a conversation about. And we're just going to have kind of a round robin situation where we talk about the article and what our thoughts are on that. Aaron, uh, would you like to kick us off with your article on micro colleges? Just giving Mm -hmm. us a a brief uh, overview of what the article is about, and then we'll have a short conversation about it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for putting me up first because there's nothing like pressure. I was really fascinated uh, by an article in the Chronicle of Higher Ed last week. That would be August 17th. It was written by uh, Lee Gardner and Audrey Williams June, and it really focused on the pressures that are facing the very small colleges and universities, uh, those that are around a thousand students and smaller, and the pressures coming from a, a variety of factors, including um, enrollment challenges, demographic cliff, quote unquote, challenges, and sort of the very perilous fiscal path that lies ahead of these institutions, the sort of big peril being um, eventual shutdown. And it was just really interesting to see folks focus on this segment of institutions. It's where Teresa and I do a lot of work. While we work with you know, a wide range of institutions, many of them are small, many of them are religiously affiliated, and many of them are very much on the brink. And I think it, what fascinated me about this article is that it, it made a point that Teresa and I make in these conversations regularly, that there are a number of institutions that were on the cliff's edge in February, 2020. And not that I, I think any of us would ever say we um, welcomed or enjoyed the pandemic experience. Uh, for many of these micro institutions, it was a godsend because it led to CARES Act funding, uh, which gave these institutions an enormous, relatively speaking, enormous financial influx that enabled them to get through the pandemic, but also to really refill the coffers in in some other areas of the institution as well. And so I just thought it was really, really interesting to see this segment of institutions called out, um, really defined and have their their challenges laid out in front of them. I think we talk so often about the bigger, the name brand, the more elite, uh, the, to use a term, I, th- I think I'm already over, the highly rejective institutions. They they take up so much bandwidth in our conversations and to see these institutions, which aren't better or worse, but are just simply because of a variety of factors in a really tough position to see them called out in their, their challenges and their hopes and their aspirations enumerated was really interesting to me. This was a great read for me as well. I think um, there are a lot of points that I'm excited to chat with you both about. The first, though, is 
the figures for schools of this size in 2010 were at 395. And in 2020, there were 435. And so that's also an indication about the numbers of people who are leaving, not going, whatever else, that the number of the population of this type of school is growing. And I think that is some sort of uh, indication of coming turmoil as well, because now there are more schools that are facing these really tough challenges who may not have anticipated being a school of a less than of a thousand people or less in February of 2020. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of those institutions in February, 2020 were more than likely grappling with the really hard questions of do we merge? And if so, with whom do we, you know, do a strategic alignment? And if so, with whom, or do we start to think about a shutdown Our experience has been that that question is the one that is most often not discussed and really needs to be because there is such a narrow window for an institution to execute a responsible step away from freestanding to either a a merged acquired situation or a shutdown. And so many leadership teams, presidents and boards, I lay responsibility equally on both of them, are so reluctant to have the conversation that they miss that window to execute a responsible shutdown. And the trauma of that process, which was already going to be considerable, is just amplified because it is done too late. It is done without sufficient forethought. Uh, Because I'm a communicator, I will say it's done without sufficient communication and it simply doesn't have to be as disruptive. It's going to be disruptive, but it doesn't have to be as disruptive to students, faculty, and staff as it is simply because it's a really scary question to contemplate. Erin and I wrote a piece before the CARES Act passed where we were asking presidents and boards to have those really difficult conversations Um, because without that CARES Act money, and especially as we saw the institutions were hemorrhaging money and enrollment, um, that was the right time to be having that conversation. And my big concern is uh, the CARES Act money just frosted over that layer of the cake and um, we moved on. And those conversations and that and those critical questions were never asked and never discussed. And that makes me wonder for this 435 what that means. And Kevin, I do think it's interesting that we gained 40 additional institutions that are in that micro college space, um, because I would be curious to see what um, their enrollment trends look like, because this if this is a steep drop to get you into this micro college world, what does that mean? And are you having those conversations about what comes next? Um, We've worked with institutions, as Erin mentioned, that have closed and we've worked with some that have merged. And um, you get to choose your own adventure. You get to choose what that is like. Um, But only if everybody is willing to think about the responsibility that they have to those faculty, staff, and students um, for an education or as an employer and what those next steps look like. And just one last point that I'll throw in there. Tress is absolutely right. The CARES Act money was the godsend and, and a lifesaver for a lot of these institutions. I am going to go way out on a limb here and say most of the institutions for whom this money was a a godsend and a lifesaver did not take this extra time to figure out how to address the systemic issues undergirding their financial position 
while they were bringing in CARES Act money. So those systemic issues are still going to be there. And once that CARES Act money runs out, I am guessing that you are going to be as an institution back in this spot where you need to be having these really hard conversations because you haven't you haven't addressed the underlying issues. And granted, you're managing a pandemic, you were trying to keep the lights on and the doors open and people employed and I and I get that. But at some point that money runs out and the hard questions are still there. And so using this time while you've got a little bit of a financial cushion to think about how you're going to have those hard conversations and what the ideal outcomes of them are is a really important thing to be doing right now. One of the things that struck me about this article, and I am still, as I'm talking about this, trying to decide if it's worth bringing this up, but I think it's important enough to do it, so I'm going to do it. But later on in the article, it feels like there's a population of schools that is just kind of left out of this article, right? And I think that in those schools are the HBCUs. There are some other schools that there's this whole uh, chunk of the article in the, in the middle that talks about, you know, the beginning of American higher education, every college was tiny, and the numbers of people who went to school and the numbers of people who were going um, completely leaves out this other history of higher education that is so glaringly absent in this article. And so it raises a lot of questions about these schools that are in the micro-college community now and what got them there to Teresa's point, right? We've seen this, you know, one of the articles that I'm bringing is this piece about Black enrollment and how that has dropped. And is that exodus part contributing to these other schools kind of sliding into this community? And if we're not telling the whole full story at every opportunity, especially around higher education, people might not really understand the full entire history of higher education. And so that part of this article was challenging for me because there is a whole other story, a whole other track of information that feeds directly into what we're talking about here. You're 100% right. And since you haven't done it, I will do it for you and plug your conversation with Adam Harris a couple of weeks ago, which was absolutely spectacular. Having read the book, having heard Adam interviewed in a couple of different places, your conversation with him went into parts of this issue and parts of this history that other folks didn't and no knocks on Terry Gross, but you got to places that she didn't um, in your conversation with Adam. So I really encourage folks to both listen to that and to read his book, The State Must Provide. And I would say, I think you raise an interesting point, Kevin, because this does go into, for example, women's colleges um, and what that trajectory has looked like um, and why some of them have closed and some of them have reemerged and, and what that means. Um, and it goes into and includes Antioch College in this story and some of those more famed, if you will, closures and resurrections. And I do think it's a really important time for us to be thinking about where are the HBCUs and what does this mean for them? Um, because they aren't immune from some of the challenges that we read about in this article. And having said that, they've actually succeeded for this long with so many fewer resources that what can we learn on the positive side of what that um, looks like and how you stretch a dollar further than you ever thought that you could stretch it. So I think there are some institutions for us to be thinking about. Kevin and I had a conversation last week where we were saying, and wouldn't it be nice to be talking about community colleges and some of the regional institutions and some of those that um, if you look at what their drop in enrollment would be on a percentage basis, are finding themselves grappling with some of the same conversations that these micro-colleges are facing. What can we learn from all of them? And how do we start to tell a story about higher education than is more than just the usual suspects? Right. Exactly. And I think 
Tressie, you raise a really important point in terms of talking about lessons learned and, and what we can take from institutions in this category. I think it's worth pointing out that there are some institutions in here that are at 975 students or a thousand students flat that are fine, that are doing well, that are very aware of and comfortable in and secure about who they are as an institution, who they serve, what their mission is. Um, So not every micro college is a story of peril, but there are I think, lessons to be learned about how do you articulate a mission that really speaks in a compelling way to your audience who wants to participate in your educational approach? And how do you manage expectations that some folks have that we are always going to be in a growth mindset? You're you're only good if you are continuing to grow, if all of your numbers are continuing to increase. Some of them, yes, absolutely need to increase, but some institutions are very content at 975. They can fill those seats and they don't want to grow into the next fill in the blank. They want to be the current fill in the blank and and they're very comfortable there. So I I do want to make sure that we point out this isn't always, you know, a a horror story. Sometimes it's it's a really good story of a really great institution with a really well-defined mission that is doing great work for a really defined set of students. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out, obviously, that like you just said, that not every school wants to be huge. Not every school is trying to get bigger. They just want to be who they are when they need to be them and serve students the way that they serve them. I think one of the interesting parts of this article to me was the mention of um, the hesitation of parents when they understand that there is a, a college that feels like it's on precarious ground as one of these micro colleges. And it brought to mind um, this idea that I learned from the story about the Isabella, the Gardner Museum heist, and how if there's a, if a museum is robbed, the museum is likely not going to say that we've been robbed because then that hurts the pipeline for the other people who want to donate art to it. And I think it's similar in higher ed where people don't want to talk about, yeah, we're, we're hurting. We don't have enough students who are teach our faculty are leaving. We don't have enough money. Those are not the kinds of conversations you want to have with the prospective families. And so what does that mean for the marketing efforts and the communications efforts? Like we talked about in the last episode about being truthful and authentic about what's happening on your campus. What does this mean for these tiny schools who are up against the ropes in very, very precarious ways. I think that it actually leads into an article that I shared with both of you. And I think um, this article was by John Marcus writing for the Heckinger Report, and it's how higher education lost its shine. And I think part of that is this story that we have told about higher education and what it means for graduates isn't holding up the way that we always had it hold up. Uh, John does a fantastic job of going through uh, talking about different groups and how they think about higher education, uh, pulling it apart, whether it's um, by political sector, by a number of different factors. And it includes how students are thinking about us as they're choosing not to enroll. We've seen so many of these articles come out that say people aren't enrolling and here's why. Um, And it's this one demographic. It's this one piece. It's this one part. And I think what really just made me stop and read John's piece twice is he pulled together all of those different data points that say you don't have the reputation that you had before and um, you can't rely on 
what it was that you brought to the table once upon a time. Um, the economic uh, mobility aspect of this isn't enough. The um, legacy aspect of this isn't enough. The All of the different ways that we talk about the worth and the value isn't holding water with parents or with students. And what does that mean? Yeah, this was a fascinating article that kind of made the rounds at my agency. First of all, the sheer percentages that are listed here in these states are astronomical, right? So there's that argument that we have to pay attention to, but also the kind of repositioning of what competition looks like in higher ed. Um, it used to be, it's just other schools and you know our, our competitors are the school down the road and the ones in California, wherever it is. And wherever you had cross apps, right? Wherever you had, you had cross apps or whoever you used as your, your competitive set for your creditor. That's how we kind of thought about what um, competition looked like. And we now know that that is, those aren't the only people who are competing with higher ed. We've known that all the time, but there's now a larger conversation to be had around where these people are going to get what they need to be competent employees and the employers are delivering that. And so we now need to think about competitors, not just being the whatever other schools, but also the Googles and the TikToks and the Apples and the whatever else, because the argument of the investment, as you just said, Teresa, does not hold up to the paying off of and what you're getting paid out out of school, there are too many questions being asked about the value. And this is more of the same we've seen for so long in this conversation. Um, but I just think it requires higher ed to reposition itself or reformat itself to attract a far larger kind of person or far larger population of people um, than traditionally old and traditional. What's so disheartening about this piece, and I agree it was excellent and I hope is being shared in in cabinet rooms, but also with board members across the country. What's so disheartening, and maybe I'm just in a cynical mood today, is that this is going to lead to another round of all of us sitting in very large ballrooms at higher education association meetings and having watching presidents get up and say things like, we just need to do a better job telling our story. I think you're exactly right. Honestly, we have been listening to that for years. And at no point do I think we've gotten any closer to understanding that the story we're telling isn't working anymore. It isn't a storytelling problem. It is an innovation problem and a programming problem and a flexibility problem. We are continuing to expect students to just fit themselves to our models and our timetables and our programs and our outcomes. And we are not doing the hard work, the scary work, the work that gets us criticism from our faculty and from our Mm -hmm. to rejigger what we're offering. It's not a storytelling problem. It's not a communications problem. You know, Tress and I say this all the time. If I had a dollar for every time we say this, I can only communicate what you give me to communicate. I can't move the needle on this issue unless the institution is willing to do something different and give me a different story to tell. Right. Yeah. There's the data point in here that backs that up, Aaron, and that is the proportion of 14 to 18-year-olds who think education is necessary beyond high school has dropped from 60% to 45%. And more than half of teenagers who are planning some further education say they are open to something other than a four-year degree. They want something. What they're telling us is it's not what we're offering. I think that we need to be thinking about that. 
first in making some very significant shifts in how we think about students, how we think about offerings, how we think about packaging, all of the different things, and not in gimmicky ways, because I think to Aaron's point, that's where we saw a whole bunch of gimmicks was after the last round of let's talk about the value of higher education and let's talk about ourselves differently that didn't really fundamentally change what we were offering. So using your Kodak example, we moved from a full-on camera to an Instamatic and that wasn't enough of a shift where everybody is. Yeah, I firmly agree with you about what was being offered, but how are we telling that new story, right? I think that we can't even change vernacular in higher ed. We're still saying traditionally aged. Well, we all know that that's not exactly traditional age. We're still using, you know, um, majority underserved. Why can't we like make the evolutions that are necessary to make even small changes in the conversation around higher ed, let alone the big offers and programs and what people need. It's this idea that what we have done all of this time is going to be, we just stay the course. We will be okay. We have consistently heard calls from Lawmakers, policymakers, parents, students, alumni, that higher education needs to innovate. Higher education needs to do something new. Higher education needs to be responsive to the workforce, uh, to the interests of students. And all of these things are accurate. And then institutions go out and they attempt to innovate and they try and do something new and they get dragged for it. If it doesn't work flawlessly from jump, for less money. Again, reason number 675,000 why I'd never consider a a higher ed presidency. It's an impossible task because your Mm -hmm. lawmakers are telling you, you need to be able to offer a degree for $10,000. Okay, well then I'm going to cut the climbing wall, the residence halls, the mental health counselors, the dining hall options, no oat milk for anybody. And all of a sudden the parents are going to come and absolutely run you out of town on a rail because you aren't providing the experience that they want for their students. And so it's this constant catch 22 of we need to be different. We need to be better. We need to be nimble. We need to innovate, but you better do it right. You better do it right every damn time. And you better do it right for less money and fewer resources. It's absolutely impossible what we're asking these institutions to do. I agree with you. I agree with you. I also think though, John points in describing the data, he's also pointing to some of the small changes that can be made as well as some of these big fundamental changes. And I think so often, you know, everybody throws their hands in the air and says, oh, but this is such a big problem. Well, there are some incremental steps that we can start thinking about. And there are some ways for us to be moving that needle so that it just isn't, well, it's all or nothing. And and what does that look like? Because part of that is student focused and part of that is community focused. So as we talk about the demographic cliff, right, what does it look like when uh, the number of traditional age students declines, what happens to enrollments? We still have a lot of options out there for who can fill our classrooms. It's do we want those students and are we prepared to accept them into our classrooms and have them succeed? So Kevin has his two articles. I'll add my last one. My last article was from uh, the Education Trust and it was a report uh, that's entitled for student parents, the biggest hurdles to a higher education should be degree are costs in finding childcare. And if you think about what that means, We have student parents out there who are traditional aged and who aren't um, that we could have come in, but they can't afford to come. 
And if they can't afford, they can't arrange the childcare to succeed. I'm not saying that higher education needs to be responsible now for daycare centers and for making sure everybody has a place for their children, but there are some ways and steps that we can be thinking about this, especially as we say, we're going to be looking at additional student populations to make sure that we're filling our classrooms. Especially as we can expect to see some increase in student parents as mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade is rolled back. And That's exactly right. right. We have students yes. who are still going to want to enroll in states where abortion care is now going to be completely restricted, as well as states where it is going to be rolled back. That's exactly where I went to as well. Exactly. As we say, what about the different states? The study found that there is no state in which a parent can work 10 hours per week at a minimum wage job and afford both tuition and child care. And if you stop and think about that, there's nowhere in this country. And if you start to think about it takes 52 hours per week of a student parent to work to cover childcare and tuition costs, how do you work 52 hours per week and be a parent and go to school? We're asking for the impossible. Right. I do want to give a shout out to John Comerford, president of Otterbein University in Ohio, uh, who was referenced in the How Higher Education Lost Its Shine article for other reasons. But on that campus specifically, and I know this because he's been on the show before, they use their early child development students to provide childcare to the adults who come in for night school at Otterbein. And they can just take their, their kids there. And it's not like a revolutionary idea. It's like you've got people who are doing this. You can give them some practical experience doing it. But when we have articles like this around childcare being the number one expense that keeps people from higher, getting a higher ed, higher education, what are the, some of the solutions that are like the one at Otterbein that we can employ to help people get to where they're going? I'm flummoxed by the entire thing. Again, yeah. sometimes it's the big solutions and sometimes it's the small solutions. But if we're not looking for solutions, we're not going to see them. Yeah, yeah. I, I think childcare is particularly challenging, Tress, and I have worked with institutions that have had to make very challenging choice to close child care centers on campus that have been offered primarily to faculty and staff below market rate in areas where there are, you know, it's highly rural. There are very few other options. Thinking about the licensure and insurance requirements on those centers right. can be staggering. But I think, Tressa, you make a great point about incremental steps. Where can you find some way to bridge that challenge that isn't perhaps necessarily a full-blown Childcare center on your campus, but can you make connections with organizations in the community? Can you work together with other employers of size? Because I think in a lot of communities, we are among the largest employers to find ways to help folks access those kinds of services without taking on that enormous legal and financial responsibility. I do think things like this, programs, initiatives like this do contribute to the difference between being student-centered and otherwise and not student-centered. And if you don't understand where you're, what your students need and where they're coming from, there is, it's harder for you to get them to where they're going. That's how I look at it. In terms of along those same lines, I guess I should say, my article's first one is about super HSIs. Uh, HSI, Hispanic Serving Institution, currently the federal government requires a campus to have about 25% of their student body to identify as Hispanic to unlock grant dollars for uh, and other benefits. And uh, an article that was published a while ago, actually, in March of this year, which has kind of stuck with me and I've shared with some of my clients who are HSIs or who are looking to become HSIs, talks about how that measuring stick is 
fairly superficial and that there should be more responsibility in the service of the students, not just a threshold to reach, which I'm a firm believer in. I'm curious about your thoughts around this article and any, any other perspectives you might want to share here. I was lucky enough to be on a team for Lumina Foundation that visited a number of HSIs as well as HBCUs. Um, and what we were looking for was to see what were their metrics of success and how could we share those with other minority serving institutions writ large. And as well as predominantly white institutions, but especially making sure that we were sharing those with minority serving institutions. And to your point, it's such a superficial measure to say this is how many we brought in. It needs to be how are we retaining and how are we keeping uh, students moving forward. But I would guess as the different measures were being developed, uh, there was pushback on what that would look like um, and how exactly to implement that. And as we sometimes see in policy, um, we end up going for what seems like a simpler policy option, but it doesn't benefit students in the same way. Totally. Which leads directly into the next article, which is about Black enrollment and how it's been declining uh, significantly over the last few years. Pandemic, yes, as part of the contributors to that conversation, but um, the decline was felt before that. And in the article that I have pulled, I think it was in 2010, there were 2.6 million African-American students, Black African-American students, and in 2020, it was uh, at 1.9 million. And this goes to, to Russ's last point about it's not how you bring people in, it is how you are serving them during their experience. And again, a lot of factors kind of play into um, the exodus of Black students, but we have all these colleges every day asking the agency I work in, we want a more diverse class this next time around. And my new response to that is going to be, well, what are you doing to retain the diversity that you have currently? Because this isn't about just inviting a bunch of people to your campus. It is about far more than that. And it goes back to your transactional nature of things. This is not a transaction. This is, you are helping people grow. And if you're not doing that on all the aspects that they need to help be helped grow in, then are you actually serving them? And I think that I could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but I'm curious about your thoughts on this as well. I just will throw this out here. I think we in higher education spend a lot of time talking about the pipeline and very little time doing anything about it. I think we expect Black students, Hispanic students to be delivered to our doorstep and we expect to be congratulated for welcoming them in. And we forget that our responsibility does not end on census day of their first year, but instead extends through four years. And if we're smart, beyond, because how do you then go back and fill that pipeline by building that relationship through four years, making sure your students graduate successfully, and then making sure that you stay in relationship with them as they go through their professional development and continue to be a good partner. I just think we, the three of us have yelled about this over cocktails on Zoom before. You know, it starts from the folks who we are asking to go out and market to students of color are overwhelmingly not marketers of color, aren't institutional leaders of color. I'm, I'm not pointing a finger at marketing for being less diverse than anybody else. Academic leadership, higher ed leadership is not diverse. And how we expect to reach these students where they are and make a compelling case to them for what we have to offer when we don't understand lived experience in that way is 
I just keep getting stuck on that question. And I, I haven't seen anybody come up with an answer to it yet. So I recently had a tough talk with a president about their sense of belonging survey results for their students. And um, students of color don't feel like they belong. And so the president said, well, I'm going to see how this compares to our peers and how their students feel that they belong. And I said, honestly, I don't care what your peers say. I don't care what their students do. I do within that institution. But for you, you need to be caring about your students and how they feel. This isn't uh, something that you can look from one institution to the next institution and say, our uh, students of color, their sense of belonging is low. But that's okay because if you look across the industry, it's low. That's not okay. These are your students and they are not just data points. And, and don't try to normalize this and make you feel better about how you are um, bringing these students into your community by saying, this is what everybody else looks like as well. Because right. I don't, exactly. I don't want to hear that. And I had an epiphany recently thinking just about, I spent a lot of time as Erin knows, uh, playing um, a psychologist, even though I'm not one. And so I started to think through how do I start to help presidents and cabinets better understand what sense of belonging and what retention efforts really look like. And so I started to pull academic journal articles as well as articles. It's interesting to me the way they really dug into the scholarship in ways that I wasn't getting that same engagement from articles. They skimmed the articles and had a conversation. It was very nice. But mm -hmm. once we had this in the scholarship framework, it was a much different conversation. And they almost needed to be met where their careers historically had been. So helping them to get the materials that would help them process and then to do something about it, I think is also a way that we need to be thinking about how we're staffing these conversations and not letting people have a buy by saying, well, how does this look for everybody else? This is about you. This is about right. your students. And this is about keeping them. And at the end of the day, we are talking about an industry that was never built for anyone of color ever. And we are expecting people of color, students of color, faculty of color, staff of color, everyone of color to just come show up without having done any work to fix the system that was discriminatory in the first place, without and having any action. There, we'd like them to carry the emotional and mental load of fixing the place. Exactly. Well, while be you're on this committee, be on this task force, do yeah. this. Have, let me ask you, is this okay? Is this picture stereotypical? I was that student. I was that student. I, was that I learned. I learned after the fact they chose me because they they had a demographic. They were looking for a black male, a Hispanic female, and then a white male and female. And afterwards, to look at where I fit, I still think about that. I still think about right. that I was just demographics, and you know they loved my '90s bangs, and so they put me on the front of that alumni magazine, and that still hurts my heart. Yeah. Ma'am, I am captured somewhere in the. Drew University archives on the front of a brochure wearing jorts. And so your bangs got nothing on my jorts. This is one of those things. I don't even know how it were to begin to talk about this with people, right? Like that's my only response in, you know, the CEO of my agency, Jason Simon, uh, at our, one of our recent webinars said, don't come at us with any requests to diversify your campuses if you're not doing the work yourself. And I appreciate those kinds of statements because I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to do the kind of work to attract a group of people to a place where they might feel harmed or might whatever. And that's just not what I want to do with my life or my time 
or any of it. I don't want to be paid for that. So um, these conversations are so important because everyone wants the same thing. Everyone knows that now the currency is diversity and it wouldn't be that if it hadn't been for 2020. So what are we going to do about it? And that's what I want to figure out. Teresa and I wrote a piece that very much aligns with, with what Jason has said, talking about the inability that your team has, your communicators have to talk about your work to diversify your institution and to make your institution a welcoming and safe place for students if you haven't done the work. There's no email, there's no silver bullet language, there is nothing that can be said if you aren't willing to do the work. And there are challenges in that work and and we've all experienced it. Students have a much shorter time horizon than academia is suited for. If we can get a committee together and charged and have them get a report out within two years, that is a scorching pace. Um, And our students and our faculty and our staff are no longer willing to be patient, and I don't blame them, for another committee to be seated and charged and deliberate and come up with a a report that's going to be put on a shelf somewhere that no one's going to do anything about. And there is no communication that can be planned and executed that is going to take the place of doing that actual DEI work. And it is not the job of your CDO, and it is not the job of your Black and Hispanic and Native students, faculty, staff. It is the institution's job, and the president needs to lead that work um, and make sure that it's happening consistently across the campus. And then you get to think about communicating about it, not until you actually start doing the work to move that needle. I would push back and say, we have successfully been able to say we don't move quickly. And then the pandemic came and everybody saw, yeah, we actually can if we have to and if we want to. So we now are back in that position where we're saying, oh, but we can't do that because it takes time. You can't have it both ways and still expect to be viewed as credible. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we solved this intractable problem from higher. Yeah, we do good work. We do good work. We actually did solve a problem. I think that Kevin is now a communicator because he was just talking again about truth and authenticity. I think he's on our side. I think we can claim him. I mean, I don't pick sides. There are no sides. Listen, we're just trying to get people um, whatever they want. I don't know. Listen, thank you so much, Teresa and Aaron. It's always a pleasure to have you on to get your thoughts on so many important topics. I really appreciate not just your friendship, but also your expertise, your perspectives, and being here with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Higher Voltage. We'll be back soon with a new episode. And until then, you can find us on Twitter at Volt Higher Ed. And you can find me, Kevin Tyler, on Twitter at Kevin C. Tyler 2.